and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Luce Nguyen. My guest today is Remy Green, partner with the law firm Cohen & Green in New York, where their practice includes a variety of cases, including First Amendment-focused litigation. We're here today to discuss their article, Digitizing Brandenburg, Common Law Drift Toward a Causal Theory of Imminence, published in the Syracuse Law Review. Welcome. Thank you, Luce. It's a, it's a delight to be here. So let's start off with, why did you write this article, and what are the main points within it? Okay, so let, let me do, I guess, the 30-second version of the article. Generally, the government is allowed to restrict speech um, when that speech is about to imminently cause lawless action, and that's that's the Brandenburg case. Um, however, as that doctrine has developed, um, by and large, courts have said that that imminence is limited to imminence in time and space, meaning it's not just, is this about to happen in, in, in a causal sense, but is this about to happen in the next few minutes and within a certain number of miles? Um, prior to the modern age, by and large, that rule worked very neatly because more of both, first, the speech we care about, but two, the activity we care about took place in, in what people online used to call meat space. Um, that is, with rare exceptions, imminence meant imminence in time and space by default. Um, in this piece, I argue that courts are finding ways to depart from that ostensible rule already, and moreover, with the internet, that rule doesn't really make much sense anymore. Um, so, so my thesis in the piece is that we should be analyzing imminence, and courts should, be, should recognize that they, in many ways, already are analyzing imminence as a question of proximate or ultimate causation. So let's start off with a fun question. You quote a number of popular media sources within the article, including Terry Pratchett's Sorcery, Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game, and Randall Munro's webcomic XKCD. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, <laughs> I, I think, you know, a lot of it, candidly, is because I enjoy citing those things in what is traditionally a buttoned-up medium, um, and and I think uh, um, Professor Fry, who who often hosts the podcast, um, would join me in saying that uh, that we should we should try to be a little more engaging in our scholarship in, in the legal field in general. Um, but uh, I, I think in this paper in particular, there there is more of a real justification than just it makes me laugh. Um, and that justification is that the legal world is in many ways um, notoriously and, and famously bad at handling issues in cyberspace. Um, and, and, you know, very often makes just foundational errors in the way that we write and think about cyberspace. So I think I want, I wanted to reach for, um, Sources that that both in the case of Orson Scott Card um, and Ender's Game illustrate some of the ways that other people have have thought about the digital world and gotten things both importantly right and importantly wrong. Right, like the the paper opens by talking about um, how I think it's very funny that that Orson Scott Card imagined this world in which teenagers were able to go online and use philosopher Nick philosopher screen names. And people paid attention to lengthy essays online. And, and you know, you and I met uh, on Twitter uh, because there was a, a, a 
copyright maximalist troll, basically um, harassing people. And, and, you know, I, I think Orson Scott Card's um, prediction for the future is, is right in many ways and then wrong in many ways. Um, and so I, I think to, to not to be limited to the traditional sources that, that legal scholarship uses, particularly in this context, would, would limit our ability to comment on certain things, especially because, as you know, um, law review editors often want citations for everything. So, let's go towards and talk about Brandenburg versus Ohio, a two-part test, and how eminence came to be a spatial-temporal eminence. Yeah, great. Okay, so... Um, Brandenburg is, is among the reasons that when people talk about fire in a crowded theater as being the law, they're wrong, right? Like, uh, to, to cite popular media, again, there, there's a Twitter account, um, at Bad Legal Takes, that uh, I think most of their tweets are highlighting people being wrong about fire in a crowded theater, because it turns out that's not the rule and hasn't been the rule for a long time if it ever was the rule, which I think arguably it never really was. Um, so what is the test that comes out of Brandenburg? Um, basically, speech can be restricted when, one, it is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action, and two, it is actually likely to incite or produce such action. Um, in context, uh, Brandenburg itself was about a, a Ku Klux Klan rally where um, a you know, the, the court saw, I believe, a, a video that had a lot of stuff in it. But among it, there was a speech where somebody was promising revengeance on black folks and Jews. Um, there were chants about uh, burying black folks um, and, you know, using a word that I would not use on the podcast. Um, and And what the court ultimately said is, look, like, all of this is bad. We think it's bad. But we don't think any of this is imminently going to cause that lawless action, right? The, the actual burying or the actual revengeance at issue. And because we don't think that that activity is imminent, we want to let people come in and have a chance to, rather than address this with criminal or civil liability, address it with counter speech. Um, so... You asked me as well, how did this come to be limited to spatiotemporal eminence? Um, well, I don't know that it's completely right to say that spatiotemporal eminence was was part of how Brandenburg thought of itself, though you know I, I think you could argue that both ways. Rather, I, I think Brandenburg, in many ways, has that baked in, right? Um, in, in some of the philosophy of language literature, there's, there's an example that people talk about a lot, um, which is the word jade. Um, jade, historically, referred to shiny green stuff. Um, it turns out that, that in human history, what we've referred to as jade was both um, a substance called jadeite and a substance called nephrite, if, I, if I'm getting that right. Um, and a lot of the philosophy of language literature talks about, and this is an example I use to talk about a lot of things. Um, well, is it wrong then to, now that we know that jade and nephrite are, are different things, to, um, what does it mean when we look at somebody saying jade in the past when they're pointing not to jadeite, but nephrite? Um, and, and I think the answer, you know, that, that's a much more complicated question. Um, 
the, the philosophy of language literature hasn't answered it, so I don't think I can answer it. Um, but the point that I'm making here with it is um, that the word imminence, I don't think had made a decision um, it, when it was used in Brandenburg. Um, and so I, I think imminence really just meant, you know, traditionally when we're talking about First Amendment cases, we're talking about speech out loud. Um, and, and that has a kind of impermanence and, and both uh, a, a spatial and temporal quality that, that's fleeting in a way that internet speech is not. Um, so then we get to, and we're going to talk uh, about this more, um, that a number of courts ha have taken that and applied it um, in ways that I think are inconsistent. But by and large, courts seem to agree that, yes, what we really mean is spatiotemporal imminence. So let's expand on that. What, over time, has been held to be or not to be spatiotemporally imminent by courts, and why is this kind of uh, unequal application a problem? Great. So let's let's start with um, two cases that, that um, I think highlight really my point, but I'll, I'll, I'll broaden from there. So in, in a case called United States versus Fulmer out of the Third Circuit, um, there, there is a, a list of, of, quote, top 20 terror tactics um, that, that are li listed in detail with instructions how to do them. And, and you know, funnily enough, um, in reading Fulmer, I learned some, some early internet terror tactics that I, I had no idea about. So for example, um, I, I kind of think this is brilliant, but um, in the era of the fax machine, you, you would you would take black paper and loop it through a fax machine. So so somebody's printer would have to uh, get jammed up with hundreds of just black pages that that used up all their ink. Um, but but what the court said is basically, look, this is this is going to happen three weeks from now. That's not imminent. Um, on the other side, um, there, there's a case uh, out, of, out of California, People versus Rubin, um, about somebody who offered a reward to anyone who kills, maims, or seriously injures a member of the American Nazi Party at an event five weeks away. Um, and th there are a number of ways you can analyze it, and the courts in these cases do. But, but for their imminence analysis, um, tellingly, in Fulmer, they say three weeks means that this could not possibly be spatiotemporally imminent. And, and, and in uh, People versus Rubin, the court says, well, five weeks, you know, for murder, at least, we think is imminent. Um, and so, uh, you know, let's, let's point out a, a few more. Um, that there, there's a case where the Supreme Court said that advocacy... Uh, that consisted of holding up a sign at a, at a school event that said bong hits for Jesus, um, was imminently good, going to cause lawless activity, presumably because people were going to be taking bong hits for Jesus. Um, uh, the, the case that I spend a lot of time talking about in the article, um, a, a case called um, Rice versus Paladin out of the Fourth Circuit involves a book with very detailed instructions about how to become a hitman, and and one of the exceptions that I think proves the rule is the, the court, the Supreme Court, and and other. Well, I don't think that there's a Supreme Court case. Um, I think there's an Anthony Kennedy Court of Appeals case um, that says um, that 
counseling and directly assisting people on how to prepare false tax returns, no matter how long away that's going to happen. Well, that's certainly imminent. Um, on the other hand, other side, um, uh, posters celebrating killing abortion doctors don't um, d- don't imminently cause lawless activity, even if they provide the addresses and names of those doctors. Um, urging killing a judge on a public blog has been found not to. Um, uh, books and magazines um, that, that encourage use of marijuana and, and are sold primarily at, at head shops have been found not to be imminently advocating lawless activity. Um, and, and, you know, uh, in the article, I even have a table of all of these. But but um, to get back to your question, because I think that's where, where we should be, um, Those are some of the things that have been held and have not been held to be spatiotemporally imminent. Um, I think I, the, the way I've described it, you can see that I think it's a problem. And, and the reason is because the cases are not predictable. And while all the courts say they're applying a rule, um, that rule can't really be used to predict cases. So in your paper, you say that this current moment is open to... Uh the common law model of innovation. Can you talk about what the common law model of innovation is and particularly its application in uh, McPherson v. Buick Motor Company? Yeah. So, um, you know, this is, this is one of those, this is just how I think about things because of, of, of who I studied with. Um, I, I, I was a research assistant for and, and took my first constitutional law class and, uh, and my free speech ca- class with a professor named David Strauss, who, you know, this is one of his big ideas. He applies it, um, the common law model, to look at how the Supreme Court um, has analyzed constitutional questions. Uh, but but uh, when he speaks of, and, and I quote him in the, in the piece, um, when he speaks of the common law model of innovation, um, the classic example is, is this series of cases that ends in, in McPherson. And it's, it's the question in, in those cases, um, and I'm hoping I get this right, uh, <laughs> is basically um, we have this rule. It's called privity of contract. Um, in tort cases, in order to recover for, um, for basically product liability type harms, you have to be in privity of contract um, with, with the person who you are suing. Right. So if basic example, if, if I am arguing that that a a pocket knife is negligently designed um, and I've cut myself with it on one hand, if I'm suing the person who designed it and, and I also bought it from the person who designed it, I'm allowed to sue them. If I bought it from a third party retailer and I'm not in privity with the person who designed the pocket knife, I can't sue them for product liability um, because I'm not in privity. However, uh, objects that were found to be inherently dangerous um, were were found to be an exception to this rule. Um, And so in in a long series of lawsuits, there is just like what I described um, just now in, in, you know, you have all these different results about what what, um, imminence is. You had a variety of results that, that really reached some absurd conclusions as to what was and was not an inherently dangerous object. So, so a, 
a um, a coffee urn was found to be an inherently dangerous object, while a, a boiler that exploded and, and destroyed an entire house was found not to be inherently dangerous. And um, and at the end of this kind of series uh, of cases, um, Judge Cardozo famously took the, the McPherson case and said, look, what I think we're really doing, if you go and look at most of the cases, is we're not talking about um, inherent dangerousness at all. What we're talking about is foreseeability. We're talking about, you know, if you put this object into the stream of commerce and it's negligently designed, is it foreseeable that it's going to cause the kind of harm that it ultimately did cause in whatever case you're, you're arguing? Um, and, 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 you know, not to belabor th- those cases too much here, but the basic idea that I'm arguing in the piece is, is look, if, if you really look at all the courts here, um, so many courts are finding reasons not to apply um, the spatio-temporal eminence rule, um, while other courts are kind of applying it in ways where you can see that they're uncomfortable doing it. Uh, and and uh, under the, that model, right, like un, under the literature talking about how did McPherson come about, um, Professor Strauss and others have identified basically when you have courts reaching inconsistent results um, and finding ways to avoid the rule and kind of crafting a whole bunch of doctrines to avoid it, um, at a certain point you realize, okay, well, maybe they're not applying that rule at all. And even if they all say they're doing kind of thing one, thing two, thing three, thing four, um, in fact, it turns out they're all applying doctrine X. Um, and so, you know, the the both modest and and ambitious uh thing I, I i am i am asserting in this case is basically causal imminence is in most cases what courts are already doing even though they don't realize it so let's talk about causal imminence what is the theory of causal imminence and why is that new regime necessary or why has it already been applied in certain cases Okay, so, so a couple questions there. So, so please uh, let me know if I miss one of them. But um, what is the theory of causal imminence? Um, put very simply, um, I think that there's a number of ways we could think about imminence. We could think about it um, as courts have traditionally as being a question of, is this within a certain number of minutes or hours? And is this within a, number, a certain number of feet or miles? I think that we could actually say, well, no, let, let's think about imminence as, as a causal chain question, right? It's how many links are you away from doing the thing that is bad? Um, and, and in that regard, I, I think um, to the argument that that courts are already doing it, if you look at cases like uh, Rice versus Paladin, where you're talking about a very detailed instruction manual for for how to commit murder for hire, what the court's really saying is, look, once you've put this object, because we're talking about in in Paladin liability for the publisher, um, once you've put this object in the stream of commerce, there is no further causal step that needs to happen before the really bad thing happens. Um, And... And if that's true, even though, um, you know, the, the murder at issue in um, Rice versus Paladin, because 
uh, what ultimately happened is somebody followed the murder for hire guide and murdered people. Um, what, um, what's, what's really at issue is even though it's been 10 years at that point between the murder and, and the, the book being published, um, it didn't matter because you were so close in the causal chain. Does that make sense? Does. Um, and, and so, uh, let's see the, Sorry, remind me what the next part of the question was. Why is that new regime necessary or why has it been applied? So I don't, as far as I'm aware, no one, no one has, citing me or not, um, gone and said what we're really doing is causal limits. Um, so, so in that regard, I don't think anyone's technically applying it. Although, as I argue in the article and as we just discussed, I think it explains more cases than any other theory. Um, but why is it necessary? Um, I, I think one of one of the jobs that that we have as lawyers, uh, and, and maybe this is this is, I don't think this is a unique to being a practicing lawyer insight, but our job as lawyers is to predict cases, right? Um, and that's what we do for clients. And and as legal scholars, I, I think you know people who do a better job of predicting what's going to happen tend to get cited more and and, and tend to get more recognition in the field. Um, so. Uh, why is it necessary? Well, because I don't think that that spatiotemporal imminence predicts the case as well at all. Um, and, and in fact, uh, you have all these exceptions that just make no sense, except to say that's what we've always done. For example, um, courts, including the Paladin Court, kind of just say, "Oh, well, you know what? Imminence doesn't apply to tax cases, just because." Um, and everyone agrees on that, but there's no doctrinal reason that makes much sense other than we know that it doesn't apply to tax cases, right? It doesn't apply to specific instructions on how to prepare illegal taxes. And, and, and I think the answer to that is actually because once you've given those instructions, it's causally imminent that somebody's going to uh, commit tax fraud. So can you talk about the underlying First Amendment theory to the causal theory of imminence? Yeah, so um, when, when I, in the paper, talk about um, underlying the underlying First Amendment theory, I think one of the things that we always do when we're doing First Amendment cases is, is you always have to pause and say, well, okay, let's, let's think about um, the underlying justifications for the First Amendment, what, what interests it's trying to protect, and let's make sure that we're not about to go down a road that... that kind of undercuts all of that. And so um, one of the things that, that I, I think most scholars ask themselves when they're, when they're writing First Amendment papers is, you know, if, am I about to advocate something that would chill a bunch of speech, right? If, if, and, and in this case, the, the question, and I think it's a real one for the paper, is if courts explicitly switched to a causal theory of imminence, um, would, that, would that allow courts to restrict much more speech than they're doing right now? Um, so in terms of thinking about, uh, what, what are the underlying justifications here and, and how have they played out in past cases? Um, the, the core interest and it's, it's present in Brandenburg and, and the, the core concern is, okay, we don't want to chill any speech or make, uh, uh, illegal any speech when there is the possibility for counter speech. Right. That, that's it. going back to Brandenburg when we're talking about somebody. Um, and and uh, I think there are a number of, of scholars out there who argue Brand, 
and, and I kind of agree with them, who argue Brandenburg is is decided wrong on its own facts, even on its own rule. But but it, giving full credit to the per, per curiam opinion in Brandenburg, uh, the idea in Brandenburg is basically look like there are a bunch of racists in the park having their rally, but there's going to be time to intervene before they actually do any of this. Um, and, and I think more than spatiotemporal imminence, causal imminence actually addresses that and, and, and protect, allows courts to more carefully protect speech that needs to be protected, but also stop things that, that, that are going to cause real harm um, when the, 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 the chance to, ca- to stop that harm is no longer available. Right. Um, and so in the paper, um, one, one of the real world examples I talk about is um, things like revenge porn websites um, and, and um, kind of with revenge porn websites, the, the mobs that go after people in things like uh, what was called Gamergate. Um, and, you know, I, I look at that and I, I see basically look like once somebody puts something out into this kind of space, it never goes away and it, and it will continue to cause, um, in, in the words of, of Brandenburg, lawless activity um, for an indefinite and, 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 you know, at least as far as we know it now, um, the, the people who Gamergate went after are still receiving death threats and, and harassment and real world consequences of, of, of the speech at issue in, in those instances. And so I, I think the fact that... Um, that the the harm from the speech in those cases happened to be hundreds of miles away and, and days, if not weeks, if not years away. Um, I don't think that 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 really um, get uh, that that really poses it an underlying First Amendment problem. In that um, the opportunity for counter speech doesn't exist. So in the article, you point out uh, Justice Holmes' famous formulation, the marketplace of ideas, and you talk about a particular market failures in the free speech marketplace. What do you mean by market failures in uh, the free speech marketplace? Yeah, so that this is this is a footnote that is, that is a paper I'm still drafting, and I, I, I'd love to talk about it. It's, it's one of those, oh boy, this is going to turn into a book type ideas. Um, but uh, I think one of the ways that, that one can conceive of, of the marketplace of ideas, um, I, I think what you're referring to at least is, um, the, let, let me just put, spit out the actual idea and then I'll talk about it. Um, the, the thought I had, and I, and I, I put it in an aside because it, it, it is something like you can think about in the alternatives to some of the ideas in the paper, um, but the idea is basically, what if we conceive uh, of kind of the marketplace of ideas as an actual marketplace? Well, what do we do with actual marketplaces? Um, and, and it turns out we actually regulate them. Um, and, and one of the key ways we regulate marketplaces is, um, is, is uh, through antitrust legislation. Um, and, you know, you, you're probably hearing how unfleshed out this idea is. Um, but it turns out that a lot of kind of ways in which people are chilled out of the marketplace of ideas online um, t- 
tend to look like capitalist type behavior. And, and I think, um, and, and, and here's, here's where the idea really just is, is about as far as I've gotten with it. Um, I think if you were to look at kind of, uh, racial threats, right? Like the, the kind of, the kind of speech at issue in Brett Brandenburg or, or, or transphobic threats, um, I, I think that you would um, see that they they like in antitrust um, tend to keep people out of the marketplace when they align with historical power. And, and in antitrust, you, you measure historical market share. There's there's a very complicated equation that you are very complicated. I, I'm not very good with numbers. There, there's probably a very easy equation if you're good with numbers. <laughs> for measuring how much market share somebody has and how much power they have in the relevant marketplace. But I think um, one of the ways that we could be doing a, a, a kind of finer tooth comb, uh, what's the difference between somebody advocating let's kill all the blacks and, and kind of, uh, you know, say uh, kind of let's, say that black lives matter and, 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 you know, speech that doesn't actually have any, you know, uh, when, when you have pro, sorry, I'm, I'm going to back that up. Um, when, when you have counter speech that, that says kind of let's fight back against the police type things, I don't think that that's really likely to result in anything. And what's the difference between those two things? Well, I, I think that historical, power is is a big part of how you can think of, of those ideas. So very incomplete idea. You, you've, you've kind of gotten my brainstorm on it. Um, but uh, one of the things and, and how it plugs into the paper is I think that we can look at certain types of, of, of people being excluded from the marketplace of ideas, not just as, as kind of uh, the fact of them being excluded, but as a type of market failure in the free speech market. For the listeners of Ipsy Dixit, the uh, equation is the Hufendahl-Hirschman index, the HHI, which is calculated by the square of the market share of each firm, uh, summing of the remaining numbers after that, uh, from zero to a thousand, zero being non-concentration of one firm and 10,000 is total concentration of one firm. Okay, so so it was actually complicated. I, 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 am, I, am, I, am, I am relieved that my math skills have not gone so far. Neither you or I are, are economists, I take it. <laughs> uh, I, 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 one of my professors in law school said to me... Uh, <laughs> You, you, you went to the Gallatin School of Free Thinking at NYU. How do you know economics when I'd made a, a vaguely insightful economic point? Um, so, no, 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 no. I, I, I am not an economist, but I did go to the U- University of Chicago. So take that for what it's worth. So in your paper, you propose that tort law analysis of proximate cause could serve as a model for a causal theory of eminence. What would that look like? So I think this is probably uh, the easiest model um, that, I, that I propose, and, and I, I propose a couple of ways of, that we might think of, the, of this looking going forward. But basically, it turns out that in tort cases, we think about causation all the time, um, and, and ca- causation is an element of, of most torts, 
right? Um, so um, I don't know. I don't know that uh, anyone would say that that tort law handles proximate cause in an easy way. And I'm sure uh, I know that you guys have a lot of law school listeners, and I'm sure that the people preparing for their torts exams uh, will want to hang me if if they. If if I suggest that tort law proximate cause is easy to understand, uh, <laughs> but uh, it it at least is a body of law that exists, and, and I, I don't know that I'm necessarily saying that I, I think that we could shift to something that would answer all the questions, but I but I, I do think that um, tort law proximate cause analysis shows that we can start analyzing things in terms of where they are in the causal chain. And I, and I think analyzing things in that way, the fact that courts are able to do it, um, it, it is usually the first objection to it, to a heady type theory like this one. And, and so my response is, look, courts are and, and, and do every day analyze causal imminence. They just do it in this other context. You also make reference to Judge Posner's entrapment machine, the... Uh... Hypothetical. What is the entrapment machine, and how is it important to understanding a causal theory of eminence? So I don't know that uh, anyone has ever called it a the entrapment machine. Besides me, although uh, you know, it's I think that that phrase is descriptive and perhaps a bit obvious. But uh, Judge Posner, in, in this one case, uh, proposed this hypothetical, and it's it's basically an intuition pump thought experiment, to use um, the term that uh, philosopher Dan Dennett uses for these things. Um, and it's designed to pull on a particular contrary intuition um, to highlight a contradiction and a flaw in a particular argument. And, and uh, you know, ideally end up at, a, at an intuitional result that, that can square uh, the position being asserted with the, the intuition highlighted by the thought experiment. So the thought experiment in this case, um, it's an it's an entrapment case, um, and uh, the government was arguing that all that was necessary to defeat an entrapment defense was that the government show that this person was willing to commit a particular crime, and and I think in this case that the crime was was counterfeiting money, and so to to, to push this all the way, Judge Posner at oral argument and then cites this in the opinion. He says, "Well, come on now. What if the government uh, built at every stage and, and and every piece of this machine um, that would spit out perfect counterfeit bills, and all the person had to do was press a button, and then." Uh, then, the, not content to just build this machine and hand it to somebody, the government then says, well, you know, uh, you're not even going to be the one profiting off of, off of the counterfeit money. We are just going to pay you $10,000 to do the mechanical task of pushing this button. <laughs> um, and if that's the case, right, if, that, if that's the set of actions the government has taken, obviously the person has shown a willingness to commit a crime, but is that entrapment? And, and the government in, in the case ultimately conceded, yes, okay, in that absurd hypothetical, fine, um, that's entrapment. Um, and, and that follows kind of a longstanding rule using uh, the Supreme Court, a Supreme Court case uh, from a long time ago that says, and give me a second, I'm going to sneeze. Or no, maybe I'm not. Um, 
sorry, uh, following a longstanding rule that the government cannot create a crime and then punish the criminal, its creature. Um, in the paper, I, I, I cite the example for similar intuitional reasons, um, because I think what what intuition is driving that intuition pump is is the causal question, right? Um, it's that we generally think that the person or entity that causes something to happen should be the person who's held responsible for whatever ultimately happens. So if the government causes the existence of this crime, right, the only possible reason this person ever was involved in count in making counterfeit money is because the government built the machine for them, paid them to do it, and reduced the, the process of, of counterfeiting money to a question of simply pushing a button and accepting a check for $10,000, right? Um, and so we don't think that, that, that in that instance, there's anything really criminal other than what the government is doing. Um, and similarly, in, in figuring out how to draw the line in, in Brandenburg terms between mere advocacy and, and um, incitement to imminent lawless activity in the digital realm, I think it makes a lot more sense to uh, think about how close we are in the causal chain to the relevant lawless activity rather than mere proximity in time and space, Right. Um, and, and in that sense, um, one of the things I point out in the paper is that um, certain websites look a lot like that, that, that uh, lawless activity machine that Judge Posner identifies. Um, and so uh, I, th I think the, the, one, of, one of the infamous revenge porn sites, if I'm remembering the name correctly, was uh, Is Anyone Up? And on, on that website, people would post, uh, you know, it was very focused on. I'm going to post uh, naked pictures of my ex and I'm going to post their address and people are going to, you know, harass them um, and, and send pictures of them to their employers, et cetera. Um, but, but once something was on that website, um, the users of the internet, in order to kind of do the lawless activity that was contemplated from the beginning, all they really had to do was press send on emails. Um, and so I think, Analogous to to the lawless activity machine, um, it it is the person who's who's posting certain things on the internet, and I discuss a lot more examples in the paper. But it's the it's the it's the person who is putting certain content on the internet that that is placing things in a causal scenario where the only thing left to do is to press the button. Um, and and I think that we really want to be focusing liability, and, and, and this is what this example gets at, on the person who builds that, right? So how would a causal theory be applied to modern problems? You kind of uh, talked a little bit about the uh, revenge porn website, Is Anyone Up? Uh, how would this be applied to modern problems like those? Um, so... So I think it's it's really going to amount to, um, and, and we talked about this already, it's going to look, at least if, if, if any court ever decides to follow my theory, <laughs> um, I think what it would look like is very much like the kinds of, of, of things that you talk about in 1L torts in, in proximate cause, right? It's, it's going to be, you know, how foreseeable was it that this consequence would follow? Um, and so, I, you know, I kind of hinted at it in blurring some features of, of is anyone up? But 
um, let's let's call them is anyone up two and is anyone up three? Let's say the website is anyone up two really only focuses on naked pictures. And and what we're talking about is, is a is an action for harassment based on based on things. If that website, for example, doesn't allow somebody to post somebody's address, right? If if it doesn't allow somebody to post their real name, um, maybe just posting a photograph to that website is not does not create a causal link. Um, on the other hand, if if uh, and we'll call this is anyone up three, and it, and if if you go to the website is anyone up three, and it turns out on that website it has a uh, you know it, it has it has an address field and it has a like names, aliases, employer, um, right? And it has all of this information that, that, that really makes it so that the only step left is, is some random person on the internet, uh, and, and it turns out that mobs on the internet do this all the time. All, all it takes is kind of uh, some amount of community uh, glomming on to uh, the, the decision to harass somebody, I think in that instance, it's a lot easier to draw the causal line and say, okay, well, the person who caused it, the entity that caused it is either the person who made the post or the person who created a website that, that, that works this way. Um, and of course, if, if I'm talking about website liability, I, I should flag, I think that holding, um, such a, a, a website, um, post liable for anything would run into some section 230 problems, which is not, uh, the issue of the day. But um, by and large, I, I think uh, how does a causal theory apply to modern problems? Well, it, it applies the same way we've always done causation. It's just that we've, I, I think my theory would shift the focus away from kind of an arbitrary uh, attempt to connect the type of lawless activity to the amount of time to the distance in a way that just you know, if you look at Paladin versus Rice, even in the pre-digital era, courts were already disregarding, right? Um, and, and to just uh, put a cherry on it, you know, the the, the Rice case concerns um, a murder that took place ten years after uh, af after the relevant publication that that is that is giving rise to liability. And I think, um, if I, if I'm not mistaken. Um, hundreds of miles away. And, and so it, even though what we say is that the rule is causal temporal or is spatiotemporal imminence, um, you know, th this case makes clear that, well, we don't really mean that at all. And so my, my answer ultimately is uh, we'd apply it just like we'd apply it to past problems. And, and we'd, we'd, we'd realize that we've really been talking about causation the whole time. So is there anything left to say that we haven't covered yet. So uh, I think uh, I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but I, I, I think of this article as both very ambitious and, and, and very modest in a sense, um, because I'm not, I don't think I'm really advocating for courts to change what they're doing in most cases. Right. And, and I think a lot of law review articles out there, including others that I've written, basically say, look, we need to change what we're doing, right? We're getting it wrong. And in this paper, I think the, the modest thing I'm doing is I'm saying, I don't think that courts are getting this wrong. And I think, in fact, uh, what's driving the results are correct intuitions 
about what speech should and shouldn't give rise to liability. Um, what is ambitious about the paper um, is, is I'm basically saying, look, the Supreme Court's been getting this wrong for nearly 100 years. <laughs> um, and, and that's not modest, right? That, 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 that's, that's a, um, in internet terms, that's a hot take. Um, so what is it that I have to say in addition to what I've said? Um, I think the, the answer is, look, courts are not being consistent on this. Um, and you can, you can find a lot of different explanations. Um, and, and certainly I'm, I'm hardly the first to propose an explanation. But, um, and, and here's what I think is novel about the paper, a lot of people have basically said, we, we need to throw everything out, right? Like Brandenburg doesn't work anymore. Um, uh, the digital realm means that our traditional speech doctrines don't work. And I think what I'm saying in the paper, and I would know, I guess, because I'm, I'm the one who wrote it, what I'm saying in the paper is, I don't think we have to do that. I think the doctrine's right, and we're just saying the wrong thing. Um, and, and, and we kind of just this quirk of how we did things historically, like the fact that speech mostly until the modern world, uh, when it caused things, it tended to cause things within a certain spatiotemporal scope, uh, became a baked in assumption. And, and all we have to do to, to adapt the rule to the digital world is recognize imminence might mean something beyond just what's within a couple feet and a couple minutes of you. So as a final question, what would you like students, scholars, and policymakers to take away from this article? So I would hope that um, the first takeaway, as we've said, I, I think is courts aren't doing, aren't doing what they say they're doing and that this area of law is inconsistent and, and ready for someone to either reform it, um, which is what a lot of other scholars propose, right? That, that we should just uh, rewrite the area of law altogether or kind of, um, and this, this is the common law innovation point, or it's ripe for common law innovation. It's ripe for somebody like a Judge Cardozo to, to say, you know what, I think what we've been doing this whole time is this whole other thing. I, in the footnotes of the paper, I identify a, a, you know, a number of other explanations that one could come up with. Um, but I think, I, I really think that, that causation is, is the best explanation. And, and so in thinking about, uh, you know, is Remy right, right? Like, did, 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 did they get this one right? I think I get, I can explain more of what's going on that, than most of the other stuff out there. And, and you know, happy to have discussions and, and would love to have discussions. But I, but I think, yeah, what, 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 do I, what do I want people to take away? Um, that something else is going on and it looks like what's going on when courts analyze imminence is really is this causally imminent? I'd also like them to take away, uh, this is a little less serious, but I am very proud of myself that not once in the paper did I accidentally write casual instead of causal. That is quite an accomplishment. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming out to the podcast to talk about this very interesting work. Yeah, thank you, Lewis. This, this was an absolute delight. <laughs>
determined as I am to making public speeches, and now that I've been called upon by you and you, it gives me greatest pleasure. I might say that it's peaches. I don't know how to start or what to do. There's much more clever speakers here than I. But as long as I'm requested, I'll try. I thank you, my friend. Well, that all depends. Really, I don't know on occasions like this. I just, I can't say, but if you really insist. Speech! Speech! I thank you again. Well, if you will all quiet down. Here's a story that I heard about two hummingbirds. Let me see, how does it go? Oh, I forgot the word. Speech! I thank you, my friend. I think you'd better call on Mr. Brown.